It is in this story that we meet Samuel, the prophet, the mangy prophet, if you will. He's been given to God as a Nazarite, uh, someone who takes a vow to never cut their hair. So they're visibly different from the other people in the society. And I believe there's other implications of that to not uh, eat meat um, or touch any dead animals. Samson is one of these fellows, um, as is also um, likely John the Baptist and some others. But he has been given to God. And the story all starts in Samuel uh, with a troubled marriage. Uh, There is a man named Elkanah who has two wives, a good biblical marriage, you know. Um, When we talk about biblical marriage, um, we're often talking about situations uh, of polygamy, which uh, do touch our modern world in some ways, but seem very foreign, um, that there are these two wives who have a rivalry, and the rivalry is over who can have babies, who can uh, birth children. And Hannah cannot. Uh, her 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 uh, sister wife, if you will, is um, has a lot of kids, and she doesn't have any. This is a source of great distress and anguish for her. Uh, it's a source of great grief. She goes to the tabernacle at Shiloh and lays in, in front of it and prays to God. She's pouring out her heart to God when Eli, the priest, another character in the story that we meet, uh, thinks that she's drunk. He confronts her. Why are, we, why are you making a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. Um, and it's the only reason he thinks she's drunk, it says, is because her lips are moving and nothing is coming out of her mouth. She's wordlessly whispering her prayers to God. We see a, a glimpse of a kind of prayer in Hannah's life that is so anguished, so passionate, so deep, that it goes beyond even words. It goes beyond the ability to articulate what she is feeling um, out loud. Have you ever had a prayer like that? That you really weren't sure um, how to talk about it with God, but you knew that God needed to hear it or somebody needed to hear it. Um, Somebody needs to know what I'm feeling here. I'm all alone. There's no one to help. How can a person have a child when they're not able to, the, the, the ability to conceive, although it seems like a, often a, in our world and in the ancient world too, a, a risk of, of sexual relations in some ways, a risk of a, of a child, but also um, the, the, the inability creates, a, a, the inability to have a child is a, a source of great shame. And it's not something anyone can really control. The ancient world, like our world, had had thousands and thousands of potions and elixirs and and methods and all sorts of things to to have a pregnancy, to to conceive. And yet, in Hannah's case, none of that has worked. And so she's going directly to the source of life, God himself, to confront him in her anxiety, in her torture, in her pain, in her grief. Um, And she stands up for herself to Eli the priest. She says, I am not um, someone who um, can be discounted as worthless. You can hear in her speech that she has felt worthless, I'm sure many times as she's pondered, why is she so unsuccessful in conception? And why is her, her, the other wife 
so successful and she is not. But she says, I'm not worthless to him. I think this is a profound statement of faith that when we feel worthless and we've had feelings of being worthless, we declare, I am worthy of love. I am worthy of this honor. I am worthy of God's favor and God's grace. I'm worthy of it, not because of some great ability that I have, but I'm certainly not worthless. I am worthy of this blessing. Like I have been made in the image of God. In the place of our, in our catechism classes on Sundays, we have started in the place of God's grace. Uh, we, we start in the place of, of being made in the image of God. This is the foundational teaching of Christianity, that we are made in God's image. And everything that comes, uh, everything in our lives that flows from our life, every, every question about, are we worth it? Are we worthwhile? Are we worthy of love? All these things, questions we ask ourselves in our anxiety and in our doubt, in our failure, the answer is a resounding, yes, we are worthy of God's love. We are worthy of, of this kind of grace that flows from God. And she feels that, and she says it. She's bold. She's confident. And, and she has a baby. And the first thing she does with this child as he grows up a little bit is she takes him to the tabernacle to give him to God. This, as a parent reading this, uh, you know, I read this story as a child and heard this story as a child, Samuel being given to the tabernacle. And it didn't seem like that big of a deal. I was, I was probably thinking about, boy, it'd be great to, to go live somewhere else sometimes um, as a child. But the, as a parent, when I read this, I'm like, oh, my word, she just gave her only kid away. Um, what a profound gift in a way a gift that maybe we can't really fathom, a gift that's so full of faith that our own sensibilities and senses recoil in horror at what she has done. Giving him to Eli, who is a terrible father. He, is, um, he has adult sons who are abusing and misusing people right there in the tabernacle. They are violating the sanctity of that place over and over again, and Eli does nothing to stop them. He's not the great... It's not like she's giving him to some uh, father figure that, um, that, that is going to really result in a good life for him necessarily. There's a huge risk involved in this. And yet she does this. She brings him to God. She gives him to God. All of the things we bring God are really just things God has given us. And that is what she profoundly recognizes in this gift, that this child was given to her by God. And she's going to give this child back to God in a very deep and profound way. But what Hannah does here is what all of us must do with the things that God gives us, whether it's children, whether it's um, people that journey with us on our earthly journey, whether it's friendships, whether it's money, no matter what we have, um, we must recognize that it's ultimately a gift from God. And so when we give something back to God, we're really just giving God back something that God gave to us. It's a white elephant gift exchange, really, more than anything else. Um, the things that we possess um, uh, often are the things that hold us back and, and chain us down. There's freedom in giving, as Jesus taught us um, in many ways, that a man's life does not confit, con, that a man's life does not consist in the things he possesses, Jesus says. A person's life does not consist in the things that we possess. Our lives consist in what we give, what we give away. And so that's what she does. She gives this child along with a, um, 
three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. She brings these to the house of the Lord and gives them, gives them to Eli. And there, and there in that moment of this gift, this presentation of this child and these sacrifices and these gifts, she sings a song. Uh, she just bursts forth in song. And her song is very much like the song of Mary, when Mary is told she will bear the Messiah as, a, as her son, um, which is also a gift. He, is all, he will also be a gift for the world, um, not someone to be held on to. Hannah's prayer is uh, almost word for word, the Magnificat that Mary sings. It's the same, same sort of trajectory. And it's all about the gifts God give us, the gifts that God gives us. Um, it's all about what God has given us and what we give back to God. Um, that God is ultimately the source of life. And we think about what Hannah has been through in this profound torment and trial that probably nobody else noticed in her life. Nobody else could probably see what she was going through. But in this profound spiritual trial and physical trial and trial of anxiety, um, she has come through on the other side with a song, a song of faith, a song of praise. So whatever you're facing today, whether it's uh, doubt that things will work out, whether it's fear that, uh, that whatever has happened to you will keep happening, uh, whether it's fear that, or, or just anxiety that uh, things will not work out, give that to God. Uh, pray to God in your own language, in your own voice. I feel like we're rarely ever honest to God in our prayers. And I know there's a place for more formal prayers, and that's the Episcopal Church that we're in. We do a lot of formal prayers where we pray. And I hope we can sort of add our own passion to those prayers. But there are times when we fall down on our faces in front of that tabernacle, in front of that holy place. And we say to God in words that can't even be uttered and be articulated, God, help me. God, help me. Uh, this is how people prayed to Jesus when they were sick. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. These are the kinds of prayers that God listens to. These are the kinds of prayers that do not go unanswered, even though the timing of the answer is rarely in our timing. And so it is for Hannah, and so it is for us. She is a woman of faith, an example of faith, a hero of faith not because of what she has, but from what she gives. She gives her only son to God. It's a, it is, and, and from this story of her gift comes the whole unfolding of the whole king, kingship of Israel, comes through Samuel. He is the one that selects the first king that the nation has. He is the one that shepherds the transition from Saul to David. He's the one that walks this nation through all these struggles and turmoils that they're going to experience. And it starts with a woman mumbling a prayer, appearing drunk in front of the temple. This is where faith starts. It starts in the little moments when we are honest with God about how we really feel. Have you ever told God how you really feel? It is a profoundly life-changing experience, and I invite you to do that today whether it's here in morning prayer and we share uh, things we need to pray for, whether it's in the silence of your apartment or house or wherever you live or out in the woods or in the swimming pool or wherever you are, um, don't be afraid to tell God how you really feel. God can handle it. God can handle Hannah's complaint. 
and her requests. God can handle the prayers um, that Jesus prayed in the garden. Let this cup pass for me. God can handle any prayer we can ever throw at God. And so give that to God today. Try it. Try it and see. I invite you into that prayer life that Hannah had. Amen. The Song of Mary, a parallel prayer to Hannah's prayer on page 91. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Um, Evelyn Underhill uh, is someone that I've read a lot of quotes from her um, and and a little bit of what she's read in longer form, but um, one of those writers that I've just never digested wholly, but her her influence is everywhere in Anglican tradition. Um, She was the only child of a prominent lawyer, barrister, and his wife. um, uh, She was born in England December 6, 1875, and grew up in London. She was educated there in a girls' school in Folkestone, and confirmed in the Church of England. She had very little formal religious training um, for a couple reasons. One, most women, I don't think, were able to attend seminary or graduate school in those days with men. Um, but uh, her spiritual curiosity was, was uh, powerful, and her mysticism was deep. Um, at 16, she began to write. Um, she had few childhood companions, Writers are known for that, and one of but one of them, um, one of the few, Stuart Moore, Hubert Moore. She eventually married. Um, other friends that she knew, uh, worked with um, along the way encouraged her in her writing, including Ethel Barker, who was a very devout Roman Catholic, um, and so her her work was across all the communions of our faith. Um, She went to Italy and saw a lot of Roman Catholic art there, and that was a big influence on her. But um, she came back to England and reconciled with her Anglican roots um, and tried to write about Catholic, being a Catholic Christian, someone who embodied the best traditions of our faith throughout the centuries, including including mysticism, which is the title of her great work, Mysticism. Uh, Many other books followed um, there. And she wrote about the church, one of my favorite parts of her writing, it's not in, in this book, but she wrote that um, one time she was, I think, at a some kind of school or somebody's house, I forget the context, but she was there, and there was a bunch of guys smoking in the smoking room, smoking pipes and cigars and things, 
And there was some other chapel nearby, and I guess it was maybe part of this big house or part of the school that she was at, where they were using incense, and the incense was kind of drifting over into the place where she was. So you had this the pipe smoke and incense sort of coming at her from two angles. And um, she said, you know, that's really the, the task of the spiritual life, is to live in those two worlds, to live in the world of pipe smoke and its uh, jollity and frivolity and, and uh, human relationships, and then in the incense um, also of this life, of this, the holy, sacred um, worship of the one true triune God, that we can always go deeper into God's life that way. So I've always enjoyed that metaphor, thinking about um, how my worlds of pipe smoke, which I don't smoke, but um, and maybe that's sort of an outdated metaphor as people have learned uh, what smoking does to people, but um, it certainly captures the, 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 her goal as a mystic was to bring those two worlds together for people. And she did that really powerfully in her writings. Um, and she died in 1941 at the age of 65. Um, she had taught many priests in the Church of England, many people, as a teacher um, and as a retreat leader, that many people came to retreat. So her ministry, um, although at the time she lived, was not a, not a um, church leadership position, it was her writing and her witness and her faith that was her main source of authority. So we're thankful for the inclusion of women in our church today in leadership, but also for those who went before and started um, their work in spite of the uh, restrictions that were placed upon them. So we pray this prayer in commemoration of her. O God, origin, sustainer, and end of all creatures, grant that your church, taught by your servant Evelyn Underhill, guarded evermore by your power, and guided by your spirit into the light of truth, may continually offer to you all glory and thanksgiving, and attain with your saints to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have promised us by our Savior Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. You also recall that in The Hobbit, um, when the hobbits hide and disguise themselves um, in the town of River something, uh, Bilbo says, he doesn't say he's Bilbo Baggins. He says his last name is Underhill. And um, I don't know if that's a nod to Evelyn Underhill, but she was at her height of popularity in England right when Tolkien wrote those books. So maybe, hard to say. It's also a great Hobbit name because they all live under hills.